You need to re-record that. That was awful. How dare you? It's great. No, you, you could do it great. You didn't do it great there. How you, dare you? No. Take, take the critique, rework it. Same words, different voice. What's wrong with the voice? Iron Brains, a podcast that hopes to be misunderstood, underappreciated, and ignored until our tragic death many years from now, only for everyone to start talking about how much they actually always loved us before our bodies have even fully cooled. My name is Bob, sitting across the way from my good friend and co-host, and long-time established Norm MacDonald fan, that's <laughs> Abe. How you doing tonight, Abe? Doing well, Bob. Yeah, here we are. Lori's here, too. How are you doing, Lori? I'm kind of sad now. Kind of sad now because the technology wasn't working for the last no, no, fucking no, 30 you minutes. You reminded me Norm MacDonald died. Oh, no, I'm, yeah, that's, get sad that's also when sad, too. technology doesn't work. I get panicked. Yeah. Happy once it does. No need to dwell on it. Norm's dead, Abe. You big yeah. Norm fan? I was always a, a big uh, Norm fan. It's so sad. It came out of... So, like, I, I guess he had cancer for, like, nine years, and he just... That seems to be the thing, that just kind of keep it quiet until you die. I also have been a Norm MacDonald fan for a very long time, to the point where I think I used to own Dirty Work, even, <laughs> like, is how much... I, I think would, you did. I think that's right. I don't right. know what happened to my copy of Dirty Work, but it's no longer... Unless it's Charlie. on the shelf down there somewhere. No, it's Charlie has it. Yeah, old roommate Charlie. I know Norm MacDonald is older, but I, I'm sh- shocking that he outlived Artie Lang. Like, Artie Lang is somehow still alive. Seriously? How did that guy live? I don't know. <laughs> no. he, he's done a lot of uh, drugs, but he's still here. But yeah, were you into his uh, weekend? Because I think I started, I didn't really yeah, watch I used SNL. to watch him on Weekend Update in, when I was in high school, I guess, some sometime around there. Like, middle school late middle school high school and then one of the first things that i remember because of course i don't i doubt that i was watching him when at the height of the oj stuff when he was doing his oj jokes on (laughs) snl or if i was i don't remember it but my favorite like i saw when he returned to host snl after he had been fired his opening monologue is one of my favorite norm moments ever and i'll play a clip of it here so then, a year and a half ago, right, I had a sort of a, a disagreement with the management at, uh, at the NBC. Uh, I wanted to keep my job, right? And they felt the exact opposite. So, so you see, they, like, uh, they fired me because they said that I wasn't funny, you know? Now... Now, with most jobs, I could have had a hell of a lawsuit on my hands for that, but, but see, this is a comedy show. So they got me, you know, you know what? You know what? But now, this is the weird part, right? It's only a year and a half later, and now they asked me to host the show. So I wondered, I go, hey, wait a second here. Hey! I go, how did I go in a year and a half from being not funny enough to be even allowed in the building. 
to being so funny that I'm now hosting the show. How did I suddenly get so damn funny? It was inexplicable to me, because a year and a half, let's face it, is not enough time for a dude to learn how to be funny. <laughs> then it occurred to me, I haven't gotten funnier. The show has gotten really bad. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm funny compared to, you know, well, you'll see later. But... <laughs> Okay, so let's recap. The bad news is, I'm still not funny. The good news is, the show blows. All right, folks, we got a bad show for you tonight. Dr. Dre, Snoop Doggy Dog, and Eminem are here. Just, just the best. You know what's great about Norman? His delivery. Like, he's never, like, in a particular hurry, and he didn't mind that there's a, a bit of a so pause. Like, he'll it's just so wait to tell his story. And just There's a... the Yeah, I shouldn't have said what I'm about to say right now, because I interrupted you. Oh, no. Tig Notaro's recent stand-up. Yeah. Happy to be here. Have yeah. you seen it? I have not, no. It's so fucking good. It's She it's, has a similar kind of... Yeah, like you have to wait. Yeah. We're yeah. waiting. And that's like the point is right. that we're waiting. It's wonderful. My favorite bit of his was the uh, the, the shallow grave because it's just I mean, like he pr- people plan to like kill and do all this stuff but then like ah fuck it just just <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to go that far in just <laughs> throw the body in there and leave. Yeah. It's not even that so there's because there's a lot of what people would say about Norm. They would say that the punchline doesn't matter, that the point is not the end of the joke. But I think that misses like a full half of what makes Norm so great, which is that actually the punchlines were usually really great. Right. Now, the fact that you took this winding and circuitous route to get there, like, yeah, it only enhances the experience, but it doesn't mean that there's not actually a joke at the end, right? Right. right. Now, sometimes the, it doesn't seem worth it. There's a great clip. A lot of the clips that you saw this week going around were from his appearances on Conan. And there's a great clip where he tells this long joke, and he gets to the end, and it's just a stupid pun. Right. It's just like, uh, it's a joke about light a, on. a porpoise. Instead oh, of a purpose, one. oh okay, it's like it's a it's a turtle joke, and and at the end he's like says something about a porpoise, and it's, and it's just a stupid pun. And Andy Richter says, "You're like a guy who stopped us on the side of the sidewalk and then dragged us on a four mile hike for two hours, and then at the end pointed at a dog turd and said, hey, see, dog turd.' <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you watch that clip, and I'm, it's not, it's it." It's worth watching because Norm completely loses it because Andy has identified exactly right. the thing that is Norm's, in, like, the entire thing that he's doing. Right. He, like, literally falls off the chair laughing so hard, on, like, onto his knees, and it just looks looks over at Andy Richter with such joy and, like, 
gratefulness right. for the fact that he has been seen in this way and that Richter was able to identify it. So it's it's almost not as good just as a piece of audio, but I'll put the link to the video in the show note. And it's it is. It's it's one hundred percent about the journey, but also the jokes were always good at the end as well. Right. Right. And and yeah, it is a lot about the delivery of the thing. It's about his presence. My feeling about Norm is a much more like personal one though. Like it has so little to do with the jokes and so much more to do with just like this general feeling that I got from him that he really understood the world, that he looked around and saw things incredibly clearly and and recognized them for the, for the absurdity of the entire thing, but also was able to maintain a great deal of joy. He derived a great deal of joy from the world while recognizing at the same time that it is a completely absurd place. And that there's a there's an element of a way that I wish to be when I watch Norm MacDonald existing in the world. That is a, that's, a, that's a way that I hope that I sort of present is that the world is a silly, terrible place most of the time, but also I'm getting, I'm getting a great fucking kick out of experiencing it. And that's the feeling that I got from Norm. It's like, it's a level of perception and understanding of things, but it's not saddled with an arrogance, right? right. Like he, he, despite the fact that you could read him as like wildly arrogant, sort of if you chose to. But I think that was that's more on the observer's end than it is on anything that he was actually doing. Like, and I, and I get it. Like, if people see what Norm is doing and they're like, "Oh, he's just a, he's just an aloof asshole who doesn't right. want to participate in the world with the rest of us," but I, I found that he, he got, he derived so much joy from it that I didn't get that sense of arrogance from him. Uh, and that's, I think that's a lot of what I loved about Norm. I, I don't uh, even. In addition to the fact that he's just fucking hilarious, yes. that he's like Mitch Hedberg level hilarious, just when it comes to crafting jokes, but then also all of this other stuff. Right. I don't remember who I was having this argument with and how it ended, but I just remember somebody just was not a big Norm McDonald fan. Like, oh, he's he sucked at Weekend Update, and I just never got his humor. And I was like, I, I couldn't really. Give like a good. It's like I, he just because he always came across as just funny, just like just the that shit eating grin that he has as he's telling the story and like this, right. this, everything. Like I'll just be just sold from the get go. So it's kind of hard for me to if somebody's like ah, it's kind of hard to to, to kind of argue for him. It's like I guess you either like his style of yeah, jokes or, or not. A hundred percent. Either you like if you enjoy that first thirty seconds yeah. of meeting Norm Macdonald. Yeah then, oh, you're a guy or yeah. a girl who likes to hang out with Norm MacDonald. And if that turns you off for whatever reason, then, then fine, I yeah. guess. Yeah, find someone uh, else, yeah. Right. <laughs> and, the, and the fact that he was, like, he, he just, he never pandered. He didn't fucking care whether the joke was working or whether it wasn't. He loved when people would, like, groan yeah. at him. Right. I mean, it's just is that, I'm doing this thing. You can come along for the ride or not, but this isn't about you. I want to make you laugh. Yeah, sure. But at the same time, this is about this thing that I'm doing. And it has way less to do with making sure uh, that I'm I'm going to make you feel good. He spent a considerable amount of airtime uh, taking shots at OJ, especially during the, the years after the trial. And I don't even know if it's like just something that was made up, but one of the reasons why he was shit canned was someone high up, I guess, at NBC was a right. So Don Don Olemeyer, one of the big 
heads at at NBC told him he was OJ's golf buddy, and he told him to lay off the OJ jokes. Right. And then he goes on Weekend Update, and he does a, the joke about Johnny Cochran's got the the knit cap that OJ was apparently wearing that night. Testimony during the final week provided some spellbinding moments. In a brilliant move during closing arguments, Simpson attorney Johnny Cochran put on the knit cap prosecutors say OJ wore the night he committed the murders. Although OJ may have heard his case when he suddenly blurted out, hey, hey, easy with that. That's my lucky stabbing hat. <laughs> And he's showing it to the jury, and and OJ stands up in the middle of it, and he goes, "Hey, Johnny, that's that's my stabbing cap. Give that back." <laughs> like, oh, well, uh, and then he and then he just smiles that big, stupid, shit-eating grin that he would have, fully aware that he's probably getting fired because of that joke, and it was worth it, right? Because you do it for the joke, right? And also, I don't, I don't know how too many like people like Norm or just comedians who you tell that to and they would follow, you seem like you're almost guaranteeing that they're going to lean into it, right? Because, like, right. who... Yeah, you can't say, what? don't it's, do that thing. It's like, they're going to do They're going to do that thing way more now. Right, right. Norm is dead. It is sad. He was one of my favorites. We watched every episode of... Everything he's done. Yeah, that goofy. Remember the Comedy Central sports thing, which was awkward and terrible. Oh, yeah, so good. Except for the fact that it was Norm, so it was fucking no, perfect. No, it was perfect. <laughs> yeah, it was great, but it was like you knew that it wasn't going to survive. Right. Like you and we watched... watched Norm Macdonald had a show. Yeah, and we can still. I think they're still on Netflix, and we should go back and watch those. We don't have time. But yeah, Norm Macdonald. It is sad that he's dead. I like the way that he went out, not telling anybody about it. Let everybody find out. And... So it's interesting that you say that because the other day at work we were talking about how we want people to react to our own deaths. This was before Norm Macdonald died, oddly enough. And like, you know, like what you want people to do. And what I said was I want no one to find out till like five years later. Uh because <laughs> then and they can't be sad about it. <laughs> like, if we found out last week that Norm MacDonald had died right. two years ago, right. it would have, like, taken the edge off of it a little. Could you do that? I guess he wasn't really on TV that much. I think he w he did, like, a thing with... I, I didn't know David Spade had a show on Comedy Central, but he, all of the former Weekend uh, Update guys were yeah. on. And that wasn't too long ago, but, like, if somebody... If you were trying to do this uh, plan, Lori, you would have to, like do some smoke and mirrors or just kind of yeah well you would need you would need your like inner circle to all sign like right. weird contracts yeah ndas it would be really like, funny yeah that would like be a list or even b-list celebrity could do it right like cuba gooding jr could be dead yeah cuba gooding jr right. could be dead right now for all and we know like <laughs> we're fine <laughs> Hey, are you making a confession here? <laughs> <laughs> I had nothing to do with whatever happened. I, uh, it is bizarre, and it makes perfect sense because he's not someone who sought out the sort of fame that that other people have sought out. But I mean, like Rob Schneider had a better Hollywood career than did Norm Macdonald. Like Rob fucking Schneider. Wow. I guess you're right. Yeah, the Deuce Bigelow stuff and da all those. David Spade had a better yep. leading man Hollywood career than did Norm Macdonald. Like yeah, but it... Norm Macdonald wasn't. I, 
did he want one? He, well, yeah, they it's like, not in that lane, or do you think? Well, he did dirty work. He did another movie too. He wrote his his fake autobiography or memoir a couple years ago. It's just the thing he was ago. best at was like the weekend update thing, which is also that sports show thing. Right. I mean, he's just a he was a, a, a terrific just go on the talk show and and have a bit for seven minutes kind of guest. He yeah, was just a he actually was very good guy. in that, especially like with a Conan or someone he can kind of play off. He was very good at that. Anyway, can't just talk about Norm all night. Could. What else happened this week, Abe? We've got big news today. Oh? This morning was that uh, Pfizer has announced that they're going to go in the next few weeks to the FDA with evidence that their vaccine generates a robust immune response in children from ages 5 to 11 and is safe uh, for children that young. And the way that they did that is they tested a bunch of kids with a like a one-third dose relative to the size that they were giving adults. Did and they try anything else or just a, th- a third of the regular? Did they try like two-thirds and or half and see, oh, this kid died and, oh, this kid's all right? No, <laughs> I don't think. They, I think the only test they did was, uh, was the one-third dose. Okay. Wasn't there some sort of moral quandary that you had uh, when uh, – they were rolling out the, the experiments. Like, would I want my child? Would I, you know, put my child in a trial? Bob always has a moral quandary. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't want, I didn't want my kids to be among the testers for various reasons. Mostly because I maintain that any side effects and any potential side effects have to be taken extremely seriously because the disease itself has such minimal risk right. for children. Who are that young? Like kid, like, and I say it all the time: kids don't die overwhelmingly. Right. Children don't die of this disease, and yeah, it's concerning. You don't know what the long-term impact of having COVID might be on a child, but by that same token, you don't know what the long-term impact of one of these vaccines could be. And that's not to fearmonger. That's just to, uh, I think, right. So basically, was- honestly assess relative risk profiles and go from there. So the cost-benefit, basically. The risk isn't worth, however minimal right. the risks are, it's just not worth it. Right. If, also, it would have been a hassle. Sure. Which is the biggest obstacle. Also, and for what it's worth, I like I want to see what the Moderna testing on children turns out to be. Because some other piece of news that came out in the last couple of days is that uh, the Moderna vaccine has a longer term efficacy than does the Pfizer vaccine. Uh Apparently, we're still at over 90%. Like at 120 days out from getting your Moderna vaccine, you still have an efficacy rate of that vaccine of over 90%, whereas the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has dropped to something like 60% of efficacy after a four-month period. So, yeah, I want to see what the study says about the Moderna vaccine, too. And then if I have to choose, I can choose whether my kids get Moderna or they get Pfizer. Or if they happen to get COVID in the next couple months before the vaccines are available to children younger than 12, then we have to consider whether we want to bother getting a vaccine that has not been proven uh, to be safe over the long term. Like I don't, And I don't think that that's crazy because you look if you, if you're looking honestly at the science as it's coming out, you know that natural immunity derived from actually getting and recovering from the virus provides a greater level of immunity from future COVID infection than does the shot alone. Now, 
who knows what the they don't know exactly what the durability of that immune response right. is going to be and whatever but the the bottom line is that what i expect to happen is that people are just going to get this virus and yeah it will be good that you can go out and you can get once a year you'll get your flu shot and you'll get your covid vaccine probably in the same jab as uh, moderna apparently is has one in the works that's going to do both the flu vaccine and the and the booster for covid which would be convenient oh, and you just nice. do that once a year yeah. And you'll still get coronavirus every once in a while. And they need to stop with this, like, the language that they're using to talk about it where it's like a breakthrough case as though somehow the vaccine has failed. Right. Whereas, like, when we – and I've, I know this is something that I've complained about before, but you don't talk about – that's not the language we use when you get the flu after you've had a flu vaccine that year, right? right. Because it's just – it's just not – for whatever reason, you don't think about it in terms of a breakthrough flu case. It's just sometimes you get the vaccine and sometimes the vaccine doesn't work. And it's going to be the same exact way with and – and it was it – was, it's almost like it was a sales job in the first place. Is they wanted as many people to get it as possible, so they oversold how helpful it was going to be. Uh, but at the same time, it's like they're downplaying it, uh, how helpful it actually is. Because yeah. like everybody talks about – like Chris Rock got the – coronavirus this week yep. and he was uh previously vaccinated and now everybody's like oh why are you encouraging people to get the vaccine like it didn't even fucking work for you right. well except that of the people dying of this virus now a year and a half into this as we approach seven hundred thousand dead <laughs> right what? still two thousand a day still yeah the virus has ended back uh <laughs> in memorial day of 2021 and a hundred thousand more people have died since then <laughs> good call abe <laughs> that's unbelievable i mean the the regular case number is whatever is coming down slowly, but two thousand—that's a big number. It's a big number, and well in excess of like ninety-five or ninety-eight percent of the people who are dying right now yes. are unvaccinated people. Right, and like th that's what should be said: is look, we don't know long term how effective getting this vaccine is going to be in terms of preventing you from ever getting the coronavirus probably it will offer some protection on the long term but more importantly it will keep you out of the hospital and it will keep you from dying right. in the likely event that you eventually contract coronavirus out there in the world right and it's it's just the the communication has been so bad so consistently. I only trust one of them. Scott Gottlieb is the only one who's ever made any sense on this consistently in the last year and a half. He's like not an alarmist. I think a lot of people do fall on that alarmist camp. And maybe they, you know, th that should be the approach considering how many people are dying. Uh, but I do think it's because of the expectation. So when, when the vaccine numbers came out after they did the trials initially – the number that jumped out at everybody was like 95%, right? And so they're talking about preventing getting the virus, right? So the, so people are thinking 95% is very good, 5% chance is very small, that's a good trade-off. And so I think people are still in that mindset where they're thinking it's a, a rare occasion that it breaks through into infection. And maybe that was the case with the old variant, but that's not the case. Now, if they actually did like a true accounting of how many cases are breakthrough versus just first time or unvaccinated i don't know what the ratio would be but it's not going to be 95 5 right it would be some other thing 70 30 or 75 25 right. i don't know Wait, just what making are you it up saying you want he wants a clear breakdown of how many people are getting the virus right, cause, and, uh, and which of them are vaccinated and which of them are not. Because if every day, like yesterday, 100 and 
forty some odd thousand, or let's say one hundred and fifty thousand. How many of these people are true first time ever, uh, unvaccinated, vaccinated? You know, like Virginia a, has this information. Yeah, so a couple of states do a really good job. Right. Like Kentucky is one. Virginia is one. Commonwealth. Commonwealth. Hmm. of tracking exactly that but a lot of them do not florida is notorious at this point for just sort of dumping a bunch of raw numbers out there and not explaining what any of the numbers actually mean and and like you know mississippi would be i forget tapper had on our boy tate reeves the governor of mississippi and he predictably sounded like a fucking dope. Um, but Tapper was like, yeah, if you were a country, Mississippi would have like the second highest death rate per capita in the world, which is just nuts. Let's talk about what you and the legislature in Mississippi is doing, because I'm sure I don't need to tell you, Mississippi this week became the state with the worst number of coronavirus deaths per capita. In fact, if Mississippi were its own country, you would be second in the world only to Peru in terms of deaths per capita. That's a horrible, horrible, heartbreaking statistic. So with all due respect, Governor, your way is failing. Are you going to try to change anything to change this horrible statistic from what you're doing already? Yeah, well, obviously, the, in Mississippi, our legislature is a part-time legislature. Sometimes I wonder if in, a, in America... If our Congress was part-time, we wouldn't be in a better position. But let's talk a little bit about better position than Mississippi what? and where Your we are with is the second virus. Wor- <clears throat> second worst in the world. I mean, I, I, how can Let, you say that? Let's talk about where we are and why. Well, Jake, let's talk about where we are. It's all very bad. The Biden administration had gotten out over their skis on this whole booster thing a few weeks ago and was sort of smacked down over the weekend with... But- regards to uh, whether or not the FDA was going to recommend boosters, and it turns out that they're largely not, with the exception of vulnerable populations over, including people who are sick and over 65 years old. But over 65 and vulnerable groups, that's still a good chunk of the population. And also, I think they identified certain positions, like jobs, where they they come into high contact that they, they're also going to recommend? like So it seems like it's not everyone, which seems like the right thing to do. You don't need to everyone to get a booster necessarily, right? But then if you hit these other things and they have an out with a vulnerable whatever or high risk whatever, that covers a lot of people, right? So you don't think w- once they finally decide, because I think this was just like the recommendation portion of it, where they vote yeah, but it's just a so it's just a question of political communication again, though. Right. Where the Biden administration three weeks ago is going out there and saying everybody's going to have to get their booster shots at five months or eight months, and even that wasn't very clear. And then they have to walk that back just a few weeks later because they were out in front of what the actual but scientists think, were telling them. You don't think that's like an easy thing to walk back because a lot of this is just in anticipation of the recommendations that will come from the FDA. Like if they purchase a lot more uh, vaccines in anticipation of everyone needing a booster, you can shuffle the vaccines around. That's not going to be a problem. Like you want to be in a position to where you're ready for all. But then if they say yeah, but it, everyone it, doesn't it need it. It becomes a question of do they appear to be handling this or not? And right. the answer is they don't appear to be handling it very well. If you're just looking at it from a, a communications perspective. When you look at what the, the – we didn't even talk about it. A couple weeks ago, Biden gives that speech where he says that he's going to require that all 
private companies. Anyone who works for a private company that employs 100 or more employees yeah. in this country mm -hmm. is going to re you you have to get the you have to mandate vaccines or provide testing daily or weekly testing for your employees. Right. Something like that, right? They're not going to do it. What do you mean you're not going to do it? They're not going to check up on that. Well, sure. It's a is what is the enforcement mechanism, and will it be enforced? I suppose is there also there isn't one, and, and it will not. Well, but then, <laughs> then what the fuck are they doing? Announcing They're vaccine? Just saying things. Trump did it all the time. Just said things. No one did it. No one did. Okay, it then you're making my point for me, which yeah, is that I know. this I'm is agreeing a this with is you. a horrible. I'm not arguing. A, a, an absurd way of communicating or, or affecting policy where you just make shit up and say, this is what we're going to do, and then you don't do anything to back it up. They're, they're not uh, going to do this because it's not a very good idea, but because they're against the Texas law. But if they added that stipulation to where the enforce, enforcement mechanism would just be anyone, if they see a – oh, that's a big company, and none of you, you know, I know my uncle works there, and he told me that they're defying this law, so I'm going to sue in court to enforce it. You know, if they, that, that would be the only scenario where you can kind of get people to do it because you're right. They're not going to, how much time and resources are they going to spend trying to enforce it? Uh, at, at, and what, so then what is the point of the mandate then? Because now we're, we're back to that thing where they're just trying to communicate with the people who already agree with them and then doing everything in their power to alienate the people who don't. The vaccine mandates, that's when the middle fingers come up, right? right. It's just, it, without fail, people don't want to be told what to do. Right. Whether it's fucking helmet laws on your motorcycle or your bicycle or seatbelt laws back in the 80s, they, people don't want to be told what to do. And so if Biden says vaccines are mandatory for anybody working for a company that employs 100 or more people, that's just going to get people to dig in their heels and be shittier about this than they otherwise would be. Right, but you don't think that they've exhausted all of the carrot side things of hey do this for the right reasons or do your research how much you know. longer how much longer does this count as an emergency and how much longer can you force people in order to exist in regular life to get vaccines and why wouldn't we be do we'd be doing it for the flu why wouldn't we be doing it for any number of other things that like it's one thing when you do it for children because if a whole school comes down with a measles outbreak and like 5% of the kids who get it die, then that's like an unspeakable fucking tragedy. Right. But if all we're talking about is vulnerable populations who are elderly and obese and people with diabetes and like, you know, that's it's a sad. Lot of people, yeah, I'm though. not denying the, the horrible impact of that this disease has had, but. Are you gonna you're gonna mandate the vaccine on a on an ongoing basis? Like every year, you have to go out and get the jab, or else you're not allowed to work. Yeah, I don't I don't think that that would ever be an option. But that's the that the reality is that this disease isn't going anywhere. Right. We're not going to defeat. We're not going to be COVID zero. Right. right. We're not American Samoa, which apparently just had their first case of COVID. For that, like literally, they they were yeah, they, they like had today. zero COVID cases all the way up until today i don't think i ever said today is monday september 20th 2021 half a percent of virginians who have been vaccinated have developed covid 0.019 percent have been hospitalized and 0.0046 have died oh wow right they're still doing pretty good 
Yeah, it's great. Largely prevents you from dying. That's wonderful. Uh, but I don't think you're going to convince very many people to go out and get the vaccine by mandating it. And and I just, if, if anything, it has the exact opposite impact. And like I said about who exactly it is you're trying to govern there and what exactly it is you're trying to communicate. And it seems more like pandering to the base than it seems about actually getting more and more people but vaccinated. like Abe just said, nothing else has worked. So right, but it's what's also, the difference? It's also no way to... What are they going to be telling us a year from now about this, right? When, when we're no longer in the quote-unquote emergency situation and the pandemic is over and it's just an endemic recurring disease that we have to deal with on an ongoing basis, are you going to continue to mandate people to get vaccines every single right. year? Like, no, I don't think so. And that just it, it just makes the administration look completely ineffectual and powerless, but, which is not something that they should be trying—how they should be trying to appear. Right. Now— I will say that California is not a competitive state, but do you think that the outcome of the recall election where uh, Newsom did not only won, but he won by a comfortable margin, uh, gives, you know, like Biden's or anyone else who's uh, implemented plan, you know, like uh, all of these rules, some comfort in knowing that they're not going to be punished for the measures they have taken throughout this period, right? So maybe they're thinking we can actually push a little more because there's no cost. It's not like a lot of people are going to be against it. Uh, well, the reason that there's no cost is because Trump is wildly unpopular in California, except for the places where he's wildly popular, right. obviously. And Larry Elder ran a campaign that was as close to dragging Trump on stage at every opportunity and bear-hugging him as can, as can be imagined. Right. Right? He didn't start off that way, right. but that is how that campaign eventually ended up. But that's the problem on, on, on the right currently because you have to do that to get the party behind you. But then it becomes toxic when it gets into the actual race when you're competing against like someone else, like a Democratic candidate. So, like, I don't know what the politicians are going to do next year, like, because in the primary, they'll have to court those voters who are still for Trump. But in general, that's going to work against them. They'll just run ads. I think that's why, because I think initially, I don't know if people just weren't paying attention, but the polling showed it to be a close, you know, race uh, for the recall vote. Right. But they started with the ads tying Elder to Trump and basically everything is like about Trump and the numbers swung in, in Newsom's favor. So I don't know. Right. And we watched, we watched the Virginia gubernatorial, the first Virginia gubernatorial debate this past week. It sucked. <laughs> and it was again, it, uh, McAuliffe who's a, like, I don't like him. Like there's nothing to really like about Terry McAuliffe, but he spent the entire time making sure that everybody knew that his opponent, the Republican, his name is uh, Glenn Youngkin, yeah. is, he sucks. is just another Trump guy. Right. Like he spent the whole time trying to tie Youngkin to Trump. And, of course, Youngkin can't deny it exactly. because he needs right. the entire Trump base to support him. Right. And, like, that's – it's just what it is right now. And it's – and I know it's not necessarily fair to pin it on Biden, but it my hope about the Biden administration – I've talked about this before – was that if there was a chance – to make the next four years not about Donald Trump, they've completely like it's gone now. Right. Like for whatever reason, it's just they that 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 ship has sailed, and 2022 is going to be about Trump, and 2024 is going to be a, about Trump. If it, I want to play. If it's going to be about Trump in 22, because he's definitely not going to be on the ballot then, 
then it's not going to be to the Republicans, the right? Because as as long as it's associated with the guy and he's not even running, no one else is going to benefit from from that. If you're on the Republican Party, that's why. Uh, you know, traditionally midterms, blah blah blah, it goes to the uh, to the other party. But like, if it is a Trumpy thing, and and going back to what you're saying, like who, who is who are all these measures for? The people who are they're against it or are not going to vote for uh, Biden, and the people that are for it are already vaccinated. So I think to the extent that there's a political message here, is is saying I'm trying, I'm doing the things that I need because I'm sure there's a good number of people out there that think. The Biden administration has been pussyfooting around. They're, they haven't been firm in, you know, uh, getting people to get the vaccine. Well, and I think you're right because it's those old, the future former Republicans yeah. that Pete Buttigieg referred to, yeah. like the old people who are aware COVID is a thing, got vaccinated, and see the Republican Party as just being totally irresponsible and off their rockers yeah. with like the disallowing mask mandates right. thing like the off the deep end right. covid isn't a problem what are you doing it's courting those voters right yeah i think like yeah that, that, that could be the and angle that's, be- and that's how biden won and that's how the rest of these people can win right that's why i think there is a chance that the, the loudest people are who we're seeing on the internet and the tv and the, the print uh stories but i'm not sure if they ran the numbers it's it's still like a majority of people are like, yeah, fine, whatever. I just want to get back to normal, right? And whatever way we get to do that, um, you know, within reason, we're fine with. On this on this subject, I want to play a clip, quick clip, like 30 seconds, I think, from Meet the Press this Sunday. Does the Republican Party have any chance of healing itself if Trump does run? If he does run in 2024, it's it's hard to see. He would be the prohibitive front runner, no doubt. But and a the, bunch of people would not run because of him. Correct. Right? And, the, yeah. and the field would be smaller. The question is, two, two and a half years from now, has his power eroded in some way that is not visible currently? And I don't think you'd know until you're actually testing it in caucuses and primaries. But he would definitely be the prohibitive favorite. By the what way, Chuck says there. By the yeah, way, that's my boy, Tony Gonzalez, former uh, first round Colts receiver, who's uh, getting ahead of uh, losing the race. Uh, he, he was a guy. That was on that segment earlier, uh, the bald guy. What are you telling me? So the, there is a member of Congress from Ohio who oh, is. Oh, but it's not. He's an NFL. He was. He played for the Colts, number eleven. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Anyway, he's not <laughs> run, running again because he was one of the ten that voted to impeach, and he's a Republican, right. and uh, that didn't work too well. Right, which is more of the sort of purging of the Republican Party of anyone who. Might have stood up. I mean, it's the first scalp, or, or among the first the scalps. The biggest one is still Cheney, right? Next year, they're hoping to. Yeah, Cheney, and, and then uh, the Kins, Kins, oh, Adam uh, Kinzinger. Kinzinger from uh, Indi- Illinois or Indiana. One of those high states. Illinois. And so I think what Chuck is getting at, and what the retirement of that Gonzalez guy certainly suggests, is that. And it's the same exact thing that you're saying, which is that the Trumpier this party becomes, the, the more fully it, it wraps itself around Donald Trump, the less you imagine it being able to compete at the national level. And the more extreme that the individual members become, right, because that's just the way partisanship works now, is that you will always have some maniac asshole who's willing to run 
in a more extreme way and to primary you to get you out of the way. Uh, and then if you're in a safe district, then you're in a safe district and you're fine. It doesn't matter who you go up against. Right. So because so many of the congressional seats are are tied up by parties because of the way redistricting is done, that there, there just aren't that many competitive seats in any given election. And the fact that, I mean, this next map and everything that's happening now, with the exception of the anchor that is Donald Trump dragging the Republican Party down in terms of national popularity— and I fucking clawed myself out of knowing what the fuck I was getting at <laughs> what again. You deserve. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that at the same time that the Republican Party might be making itself less relevant, it is also making itself more extreme. But I don't think that you can say that it's completely irrelevant because the fact is that the map favors Mitch McConnell becoming the majority leader again next time around. And they only have a three or four seat majority and it doesn't take that much. Right. And it's not like it's not like Biden is doing a great job according to the American people. Like and 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 that's putting aside any of the particulars. He has an approval rating that's just barely above forty or something along those lines, which means that we don't think he's doing a great job. And that means that his party is going to be punished in 2022. Right. That is one option, one possibility, but just one more comparison to the California thing. When, when, when the question was asked, should the governor be recalled? It was basically like a 50, 50 thing. But when they said, do you want him to be replaced for these other candidates? People like, Oh no, these kind of, you know, elders much worse. Right. So I think in a general right, but sense, California, California is not the rest of the country. Right. No, that's true. But what I'm saying is, it's one thing to say currently at any given point, moment, you know, the president's approval rating could be in the shitter, because they're talking about the things that are going on right now. But then when the question is then reframed as like either this or that, like either as clumsy as it sometimes can be, getting through this pandemic and getting back to normal, or go back to the Either, either this demonstrably deteriorating 81-year-old Joe Biden, <laughs> right. right, who's like, I don't think that, like, it's not going to, it, it will both be sad and and not out of bounds to talk about the way that he's mentally deteriorating, right? Has if he's he going to run again. I mean, compared to what, like 10 years ago? Or, or are we talking about a year ago? Like, he's been the same the last year or two. I don't think that he's out in public enough for us to know how bad it is because the little bit that he is out in public, it doesn't look great, right? But he is a – he's short-tempered. He's, he's like mean. He says the wrong thing all the time to questions that he should be able to answer easily, but, but, right? But with all of the news he's getting are probably not good. This thing is going to shit here. That thing is going here. There's 10,000 migrants somehow under a bridge. There's – a lot, right? So maybe right, and but the concern the concern at this point is not necessarily that Donald Trump can actually win in 2024, and by win I mean achieve enough votes to win the electoral college, according to the rules of the game. The question is, how bad will the Republicans behave? The ones that are only still in the party because they have demonstrated fierce and undying loyalty to Donald Trump. Right? We've gone from We've gone from the January 6th riots where a, a fair number of people were saying, like, even even to the point where Kevin McCarthy and, and, 
and other House Republicans were saying, this was terrible, this was unacceptable, and that's not what America is about, to now that entire rhetoric around that from the Republican side of the aisle is being reframed as those were a bunch of patriots right. who are being unfairly and unjustly prosecuted by a justice department that is seeking to do politics rather than justice, right? Like that is now the standard Republican talking right. point. And it only took nine months, right? <laughs> that's, that's, that's where that party is right now. But it went and through different that should... iterations too, right? Because it was basically initially all with Antifa or because it was undeniably bad. And so they were working from undeniably bad, but it was somebody else doing it to, I guess it wasn't bad after all. And there were, to the point where now Ashley Babbitt is a, a, a martyr right. for the cause, yeah. right? That she was unjustly slain by a black cop at the Capitol, right. right? It's a complete recontextualization of what happened on January 6th directly to Donald Trump's personal narrative of it, yes. right? Not, not, not anybody else's idea of what happened right. with January 6th. And so it's not the concern that he can actually generate uh, 270 electoral votes. It's that... The Republicans won't have the backbone to not do the thing that they were planning to do last time. And and something dropped, I think it was today, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read through this, which can be annoying to to read through. But this was from a six-point plan advanced by Trump lawyer John Eastman for Pence to overturn the election on January 6th. And the idea was that Pence would either he or after recusing himself, then Grassley would open and count the ballots and then they would get to Arizona and he would announce that he has multiple slates of electors. So he's not going to certify anything out of Arizona. Right. And he would go through the entire list of them, all, all 51, all 50 states plus D.C. And there would be seven states that no electors can be deemed validly appointed for those states. And so if you take away those seven states, Georgia and Arizona and, a, and a, a Pennsylvania, a handful of others, then uh, you end up with 454 total electors seated or appointed rather, instead of uh, the, the traditional number, which is 538. So it's 454 out of 538. And at that point, the majority of electors appointed would be 228 to get to a majority right. out of 454. At that point in the count, if you don't count those seven states, you have 232 votes for Trump, 222 votes for Biden, and then Pence would gavel President Trump as reelected. This is from a document uh, produced by Trump's lawyers and circulated in the administration. So you don't have to get to 270. You only have to get to 232. And, of course, the document goes on to say, this is a quote, howls, of course, from the Democrats who, who now claim that 270 votes are required. So Pence says, fine, pursuant to the 12th Amendment, no candidate has achieved the necessary majority. That sends the matter to the House, where the votes shall be taken by states. The representation from each state has one vote each. Republicans currently control 26 of state delegations, and therefore President Trump is reelected there as well. Right. So they had this all figured out, right. the way that they were going to justify it. And apparently the only thing that stood in the way was that Pence was convinced by the stupid vice president from 1992 <laughs> that he didn't actually have this authority. Right. That he went to Dan Quayle and was like, I'm between a rock and a hard place here, Dan. What can I do? And Dan was like, are you out of yeah. your fucking mind? There's no rock and hard place here. You do your job. Yes. And, and, and Pence was like, oh, I don't know. 
I don't know what to do. And then he eventually does the thing, right? But like it was laid out to him that he could have taken and who the fuck knows what would have happened it would have been then, right? Chaos. And who knows if Mitch McConnell runs the Senate next time and if Kevin McCarthy or uh, Stefaniak is running the House, like who knows what it looks like next time out? If for some reason they're able to set the rules in such a way that they can follow a document like this. And you will have a, a group of senators and Congress people who in 2018, 2022, and 2024, who was run, who running explicitly with Trump, who are far Trumpier than you would have imagined they could have been back in 2016. And it, I agree. In the terminology that you used last time around, there is no path to victory for Donald Trump. But that's assuming that we know what all of the paths right. are, right? That's because I wasn't assuming... counting this. I wasn't counting on on. <laughs> Potato quail, you know, quail to, to to say no, you can't do this. It's a pen. tricky word, right? I mean, not that you want to panic, but you can easily see a way in which Donald Trump, despite being marginalized in important ways, where Larry Elder doesn't actually stand a chance of being elected in California, simply by being so deeply and closely associated with Donald Trump. And that goes for place after place in blue state America, right? Yeah. Like over and over, like the the Republicans aren't going to suddenly take over New York and California and and Washington state and the other blue state strongholds by be, because Trump is so strong. Right. No, that's not the issue here. The issue is that enough Republicans who are sufficiently Trumpy and and sufficiently meaning completely and extremely Trumpy will be able to make a stand that they were not able to make in 2020. What's concerning is the, the fact that so many people were open, at least, to the idea of this illegal move to, to kind of not seat the the actual incoming Biden government and say, oh, we ran the math and we modified the rules just so we can win 232. Or It's a total, like, your little brother Jesse cheat when he was seven. Right, just literally rewriting the right. rules of the game the, as you're oh, playing. Oh, well, when we do this, right. I get to... I I have two pieces right. at the end of the game, but all, so I win. Right, but the rules are set up just so that they can win. I mean, the seven states thing, there's no evidence that those seven were more or less than... Basically, they just are literally just doing the math and saying, if we just cleaved off you know, these seven states... We're looking pretty good, right? And there's no cost to that, right? There's no cost to that next year or in 24. That's why from November to January, you had states like Georgia, the state legislature in Georgia, the Republicans said, uh, we're also going to certify the Republican electors as well, uh, just in case. And it wasn't clear what the fuck they were doing because Kemp and Raffensperger were only going to send the Democratic slate of electors up to Washington. But for some reason, the Republican state legislature did this stupid thing where they're like, oh, by the way, we're also certifying these. So now we have two dueling right. slates of electors here. And it's like, oh, well, I guess now we know why the fuck they were doing that, because the entire Trump, it, the, the Trump lawyers and the administration were formulating a plan where Pence was going to be able to say, well, look, there's a debate down there in Georgia, and I don't, I, my hands are tied here. I can't actually certify these electors right. right so as silly and ineffectual as it looks in retrospect because it didn't happen right and you're like oh we were panicked about nothing well it could easily have gone the other way and it could very easily go the other way next time right so but your, your predictions by the way are not they don't hinge on like some coup right you're saying that mcconnell and and mccarthy 
would be able to come back in as majority leaders or the speaker through legitimate means, right? Your prediction is not based on right. Some- no, my prediction about 2022 is that the Republicans will take over both houses of Congress without cheating. Okay, uh, gotcha. It, it, it's 2024 and the presidential election that is concerning, and the fact that. It's obvious to me that Joe Biden cannot run again in 2024, and it is equally obvious to me that Kamala Harris cannot win. Speaking of, wh- where it, has she been? Uh, is she old too now? She hasn't been. I mean, hopefully she's getting she some sort of a complete personality now. transfer or makeover or something to make her more palatable to more people, because she is completely unable to speak to anybody outside of the the, the purest Democrats out there. Yeah, like she, you're right. Yeah. I don't know where they could send her. Right. And I don't know, like, I guess now there's some talk because Newsom looked strong in California that he might actually be a, a national contender. <laughs> but I don't buy that for a second right. either. He has very limited appeal outside of the, the typical Democratic strongholds. Yeah. He'll win next year and he'll just stay in state politics. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Uh, Bob here, jumping in interrupting myself and Abe because there was something that I should have brought up and talked about here that I had planned to, as you, as I we probably mentioned earlier in this episode. We had some technical problems, and it got me all flustered, and I forgot half the shit that I wanted to talk about in this episode, the things that I thought all made sense together. And it was at this moment that I should have brought up the video of the mayor of San Francisco responding to questions about why she was filmed at a nightclub uh, dancing and singing without her mask on. And it speaks to a lot of the things that we were saying today about the inability of one group of politicians to communicate with anyone outside of their immediate bubble and to react defensively to anyone who they perceive to being attacking them from outside their bubble. And I'll play this clip, and it's worth pointing out that the only reason that it came to uh, national attention is because of right-wing outlets putting it out there. And it it's a problem that we've talked about before, where the only time that you ever hear anything bad that a Democrat did, or hypocritical that a Democrat did, it's in conservative right-leaning outlets. And the only time you hear anything bad that a Republican did, or a conservative did is when it's coming from either the mainstream press, which tends, of course, to lean to the left or from uh, the partisan left wing media, whether it's uh, MSNBC or or different Twitter media personalities. So I'll, I'll play the clip here real quick and then maybe I'll have something to say about it. And I apologize to Abe for not giving him an opportunity to weigh in on it, but uh, that is what it is. Thank you. Can I ask you one more question? And it's just this specific paragraph I was asked to ask you about. It says, this is in, in a published report, it says that a video, again, this is nitpicky, but it is what it is. Uh, a video shows a massless breed neither seated at a table nor positioned at a stationary counter, standing and dancing without any food or drinks in her hand. She also posed for photos while not wearing a mask. Okay, so just to be clear, um, um, I was sitting at my table and when, I don't know about you and whether or not you know who Raphael Sadiq and Dwayne Wiggins are, but I don't know about you, but if you know who they are, I don't care where you're sitting, you're gonna get up and start dancing. My drink was sitting at the table I got up and started dancing because I was feeling the spirit and I wasn't thinking about a mask. 
I was thinking about having a good time, and in the process, I was following the health orders. Not to mention, the Chronicle reporter who walked up to me had no mask in sight. When I took a picture, as I do in any case, or do an interview, yes, I take my mask off when I want to take a picture. I don't need to, I'm vaccinated. I don't need to wear a mask and take a picture every single time. I don't want to. But at the same time, I'm being careful to not only protect myself and to protect other people. This is nitpicking. This is really unfortunate. And let me tell you, when the spirit moves you because you are watching history in the making, Bay Area royalty perform, I don't know about you, but I'm not gonna turn around and look for where my mask is or look to see and make sure I'm picking up a drink. I'm just gonna let the spirit move. The video cuts out there at the end where she's saying that the, the spirit was moving her and she wasn't going to bother with the mask because she was just feeling the moment uh, too much to worry about such silly things. And of course, that is in direct contradiction of the city of San Francisco's orders that any time that you're in a in, in indoor venue, vaccinated or not, you have to have your mask on. And that earlier in the video, she actually says, well, what do you expect me to do is, is, is take a sip of my drink and then put the mask back on and then take another sip of my drink and then put the mask back on? Pointing out the absurdity of the rule that she and her own government and health department are inflicting on other people right so and i don't want to put too fine a point on the hippocratic on the hypocritical aspect of it uh which is obvious uh but this is a person who is supposed to be there governing all californians and making rules that all californians are supposed to be following and just out and out saying i'm not going to bother with that shit and it's no wonder that people on the who perceive themselves to be on the other side of the aisle from her are going to get upset about it and it just makes it that much more difficult for uh, Democrats to talk to Republicans and to govern Republicans and for Republicans to recognize that, hey, we're all in the same shitty boat after all. Like, I, Not that most Republicans who are – and certainly the most outspoken Republicans are going to be amenable to being governed and to, to a, a good faith interpretation of what their leaders are, are trying to get them to do. The average and independent voter, the, the people who are not currently hyper-partisans, and they, they do exist. There are still, I mean, even, even now in 2021, something like 40% of Americans identify as neither Republican nor Democrat, but as independent. And that is a population that, that does not put up with the sort of hypocrisy that was Gavin Newsom going to the French Laundry and having an unmasked dinner back uh, a, year, a year ago. And it's the sort of it's the population that is going to react incredibly negatively to the mayor of San Francisco mocking the rules that she's put in place for everyone else to follow that apparently don't apply to her because she's feeling the spirit move her at a reunion of Tony, Tony, Tony while she's out at a club. Anyway, I thought that that spoke directly to some other things that we were saying in this episode about about how people just will not listen to anyone outside of their own political bubble, and it, it's what we were talking about earlier, and it comes up again uh, later. Whatever. That's that. And I will now return us to the show. All right, let's take a quick break from the news and do a, a little game. It's also pretty newsy. Of course it is. It's... 
It's now time for America's favorite game show. Did Mark Strassman, CBS News's senior national correspondent, get off a good one? <laughs> More than 43 million Americans have been fully vaccinated. Over half of them aged 65 and over. But there's no vaccine for COVID-era racism. Strassman gets off a good one. Health officials worry that Super Bowl Sunday could become Super Spreader Sunday. Ooh, sorry, Mark. Try again next time. <laughs> All right, so we're going to play a game. That's, uh, that was the intro theme song there. Mark Strassman works for CBS News. He's their senior national correspondent. He Bob's was, actual hero. He was born in Kennesaw, Georgia. Still works and lives out of the great city of Atlanta. He did most of his pieces from Atlanta. He does do most of his pieces from Atlanta. He has this habit of uh, writing very poorly and then <laughs> speaking those words to a national audience uh, multiple times a week on CBS's uh, national Bob's news programs. thing. Including uh, the Sunday morning news, the, the Face the, the Nation. The only thing that makes Bob smile on Sundays. And they often cut open, like, after the intro, they, they go to him, usually. Just straight to Strassman. Yeah. He's the best that CBS News has to offer. Here's two and a half minutes of pure Strassman. And I have, I, I went today and I pulled a dozen or more clips of Strassman getting off a good one. So every when time we play... people ask me what my husband does during the day. <laughs> yeah. Every time we play, did Strassman get off a good one, there'll be a new clip in that intro part. That was when this all, this whole... Star, my whole fascination with Mark Strassman started because of that opening clip, which is when Strassman says... But there's no vaccine for COVID-era racism. He was talking about the about the killing of all the Asian folks in Atlanta. Uh, anyway, so Abe, my question to you, the, the, what we can call it, the way that we call it a game show is, uh, I say, hey, Abe, did Mark Strassman this weekend get off a good one? Okay. And then you say yes or no, and then, and then I'll play a clip, and we'll see whether or not you were right. Okay, before you play them, I should... Before I play the clip, and then we decide afterwards right. together, full, did he, in fact, get off a good but one? But full disclosure, I watch a concerning amount of CBS news programming, so... If I had a better memory, I would probably know all of these, but I don't, so this should be fun anyway. Right, good news. So this is just very quick. It's just like a five-second clip of Strassman from this weekend on, uh, on Face the Nation. We begin with senior national correspondent Mark Strassman in Orlando. Instead of widespread boosters, the Biden White House got a shot of rejection. Pandemic <laughs> politics surged blood pressures across the country. No more all right, there you have it. Abe, Abe, did Mark Strassman get off a good one? No. No. Ooh, sorry, Mark. Oh, Try again oh next come time. on. It's such a good one. That was a good one. It gets worse than this? No, better. But <laughs> Instead of widespread boosters, the Biden White House got a shot of rejection. The way he says it is what makes it good. The words themselves are fine. Like, words, C+, plus, delivery, A-. minus. He kept on going back to the well. He should have just got the first one off, like, booster, shock, whatever he did, and then just move on. i got to play us out here with the theme song. We don't get to do more? No, it's just one. That's the whole thing. We play again next <laughs> yes. week. Did Mark Strassman get off a good one? <laughs> Everyone's favorite CBS News correspondent. Off. Jeez, Bob. Here we go. Play us out. 
This has been America's favorite game show. Did Mark Strassman, CBS News' senior national correspondent, get off a good one? There you have it. <laughs> good stuff. Abe. Yes. In South Carolina, a story that I found in the Washington Post this week. Headline, Alex Murdaugh, name, name is Murdaugh. Alex Murdaugh surrenders an alleged suicide-for-hire plot as police launch new probe into housekeeper's death. All right, so, going to have to read this article. Suicide-for-hire. I was thinking, yes. The patriarch of a South Carolina legal dynasty at the center of multiple police investigations turned himself in Thursday to face charges related to insurance fraud. Richard Alexander Alex Murdaugh, a prominent attorney in the Low Low Country region, is accused of hiring a hitman to shoot him dead so his son could collect a $10 million life insurance payout, according to the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. Uh, The agency also announced on Wednesday that it has opened a separate investigation into the 2018 death of a housekeeper at Murdaugh's home. The same agency is investigating the killings of Murdaugh's wife and younger son. Oh, this is those people. Who were shot to death outside the family's Islandton, South Carolina home in June. Uh, he, he turned himself in. and Instead of obviously doing the right thing and shooting himself in the head or otherwise ending his own life, uh, he's, he's turned himself in. Apparently, the scheme was he was going to have a carjacker type scenario right. play out where he gets shot in the head and his surviving son, 25 year old Buster Murdoch <laughs> would receive $10 million after his death. So he um, couldn't, but the plan went to, he couldn't kill plan himself, went to rye right? when Murdoch survived, right? He's not allowed to kill himself. Right. He needed so he this to- uh, passing motorist to do the job for him. But, uh, he called 911 after a bullet grazed his head, uh, telling police he'd been changing a tire on the side of the road when an unknown gunman fired at him from a truck. Was he the hired help? That was the guy By the way, who was hired to kill him, yes. I mean, I'm glad the guy is alive, I guess, but how hard is it to kill somebody if you were paid to do it? Just shoot him in the head. How did he fuck it up that bad? No, that's funny. Look. That's the joke. I'll bet he fucking ducked. I'll bet Murdaugh is such a fucking coward. That the guy got there to shoot him in the head, and then at the last second, Murdoch's like, whoa, whoa, and he moves his head out of the way. I, I would flinch, too, because if you knew— Also, why did he kill one son, but the other son that, gets money? That, that's the thing, because, like, you know, the thinking now is that apparently he had, you know, uh, the, 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 the wife and the, the other kid must have been killed by this guy. Why do you— Right, so here's the—this <laughs> is where the—like, st- you, you read that, and you're like, okay, this is weird, but you keep reading in this article, and it only gets better. A series of tragic events involving the Murdaugh family began in 2018 when their longtime housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield, died at the home in an apparent slip-and-fall accident. But Satterfield's death certificate indicated she died of natural causes, and the death was not reported to local coroner's office, which added that no autopsy was performed. Her estate later filed a wrongful death claim against Murdaugh and settled for five hundred grand. Then, on February 24th of 2019, Murdaugh's teen son, Paul, allegedly slammed a boat carrying five friends into a piling near a bridge over Archer's Creek. One of the passengers, 19-year-old chick disappeared below the water in the chaos of the crash and was found dead a week later sorry her name is mallory beach okay, I'm about to say. so i said 
I said, "Fucking Bob." Well, come on, Mallory Beach, <laughs> South that? Carolina. Apparently, I know. I, I feel Some very bad chick for her. Who gives a shit? They die all the time. Yada yada, woman. A trial was never scheduled for Paul Murdaugh, uh, including uh, charges where he was boating under the influence, uh, despite the fact. So he faced three felonies, but the trial was somehow never scheduled for that. The three generations of Murdaugh men had served as elected prosecutors in South Carolina's Low Country region for 87 consecutive years. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's uh, some gross local politics here that kept the shitty boat killer out of jail a couple of years ago. But there's more. The boating incident itself had revived questions about a 2015 hit-and-run death of 19-year-old Stephen Smith, who was found dead on a rural road 10 miles from the Murdaugh's family home. Rural road. Rumors circulated at the time that there was a cover-up in the case and that the Murdaugh's were involved. The family denies those accusations, calling them unfortunate fabrications and unfounded comments. But it's it's pretty obvious to me that uh, some fucking Murdaugh ran over that kid in 2015 as well. Uh, but there's more. Uh, Alex Murdaugh said he found his wife, 52-year-old Maggie Murdaugh, and Paul Murdaugh, the one who was in trouble for the boat thing, shot dead outside their home in Islandton. Police have not yet made any arrests or named any suspects in connection with those deaths. Murdaugh. Like murder. That's right. That's, that's the fun part among the many fun parts. You can prosecute the case, uh, Lori. Come on, it's in the name. Yeah. Right. Lawyering's easy. <laughs> you know, I can see, I always thought, you know, whenever someone well-known in a community, they'll let certain things slide, but those are big things that they're like, ah, I'm sure it was fine. Like, a lot of weird shit keeps happening around you guys, but... You're good for it. Like you would think after the second incident, they're like, "Wait, what?" Like the 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 the, the wife and the child getting shot. So the, I guess the story is that some robbers came and shot them and left without taking anything. Right. Well, they haven't announced any anything as far as that investigation goes. Right, but nobody's so. like no follow up questions. Just the cops are like, "Oh, no, that's for, for you know, like that's it. There's no like that's weird. Let's look into it." No, that's small town stuff. Is this, this guy is... into drugs? So one of them has re- has checked into rehab. Uh, apparently, he's got the dad here has got some sort of dependency on op- opioids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably got on a few benders and starts killing people. Now, the <laughs> hired help. Uh, what's he facing? Attempted murder. Yes. So the guy has been. Yeah, so 61-year-old Curtis Edward Smith of Walterboro, South Carolina, on Tuesday has been arrested and charged him with assisted suicide, assault and battery of a high aggravated nature, pointing and presenting a firearm, insurance fraud, and conspiracy to commit insurance fraud. Oh, come on. So he's, uh, he's going to jail for a little bit. Don't even think about committing insurance fraud. <laughs> jail. I'm surprised they're going with the assisted suicide instead of attempted murder i mean yeah kevorkian was assisting with suicide this guy was gonna shoot him in the head like yeah but it's not attempted murder right you you attempted to kill somebody being asked to do it suicide is what you do to yourself this was like a homicide attempted yeah but someone asked you to do it right but i didn't have to do it attempted assisted suicide makes most sense yeah attempted (laughs) 
there was a story that I read in New Gawker this week. Uh, Gawker largely sucks now, but it's fine, whatever. Uh, Gawker has been revived after being shuttered back in 2016. But there's a fun article there. I'll share it in the show notes. A guy admits that he has been writing fake Dear Prudy letters to Slate's long-running column, uh, Dear Prudence. Nice. And of 25 letters that he wrote to Dear Prudence, uh, 12 of them were answered on either the printed column or on the podcast. That's unbelievably high. So he's been being paid or just writing no, no, no. them? Uh, just for, just for, <laughs> just for kicks. That's kind, amazing. That is a ridiculous like, rate. That is amazing. He must know yeah. exactly so wonder, the, this Prudence person. They must be suckers for the same type of story. Well, it's like a title. So it's it's uh, Daniel Lavery, who she he is a, a trans man who founded a feminist website called The Toast uh, back in the day when when he was uh, bef- before he'd come out as trans. So when he was, I forget her name. I forget what... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, Whatever her dead name was is who she was back originally. And then in the course of writing the Dear Prudence column for Slate, he had uh, transitioned. And what I didn't like about... Now, I will admit to having read a lot of uh, Slate's advice columns through the years in that weird sort of voyeuristic way that a person can enjoy an advice column. I... Never really liked Daniel Lavery's advice. Uh, I found largely that, I mean, I'll just read this, oh, the opening to this article here because it gets it precisely right. Though Dear Prudence has run in Slate since 1997, the role of Prudy was assumed in 2015 by Daniel Lavery, co-founder of the feminist website The Toast and author of a book about famous literary characters texting, who transformed the column into something of a tribunal, doling out po-faced judgment to guilty white cishets for crimes of allyship. Was it wrong for a letter writer to call the cops when she saw a home invasion taking place on her street? Quote, you can't go back in time and undo what you did, of course, and an unamused prudy tisked. Would it be morally acceptable for another to steal their parents' phones and secretly delete objectionable content from their Facebook feeds? Go ahead and unsubscribe them with my blessing, prudy advised. So he was giving out really fucking shitty, right. like, scolding advice to the people writing into the Dear Prudy column, uh, including that just patent absurdity of uh, you did the wrong thing when you witnessed a home invasion and called it in, but whatever. This person took was, was annoyed by Prudy and wanted to uh, express that annoyance by writing fake letters in, including letters that were headlined in the following way. Uh, when they did run, my letters were often edited in ways that I didn't care for. Spelling or usage errors and malaprops were key to my, the voice of my characters, but they usually got corrected before publication. Help! My husband and I can't agree on what to name the baby we might get was a pleasant exception. It was important to the story that this fictional couple was getting rather than having or adopting a baby. That's like our kids say. Yeah. Uh, sometimes my work was altered in ways that changed its substance. In My Daughter is Pretending to be Demonically Possessed, and I Can't Take It anymore, I'd made a point of establishing that the advice seeker fears dampening her daughter's creative spirit by scolding her for crab walking around the house and spitting on her family members. 
When the letter finally made an appearance on Prudy's podcast, it had been stripped of its caveats to allow Prudy to deliver a sermon about nurturing childhood creativity. This child is perfect and has a great big imagination. I don't have a child, much less one who's a vessel for a demon. Nevertheless, I felt misunderstood. That one made it through? Yes. Maybe she's not, or she, or this person not getting that many uh, submissions. Yeah, so... Dan Savage deals with this a lot, right? Where he says it doesn't it almost doesn't matter if the letter is real or not because the people who are listening are getting his advice yes. to the potential hypothetical situation. So the advice is not actually being given for the one gotcha. person on the other end of the letter. The advice is being given for everyone else who's sort of engaging with the ethical hypothetical right. situation. But that sort of loses its weight and it's worth if the advice is fucking shitty, right? <laughs> like it, it sort of ruins the point. The, the kicker to the whole story and the reason that it's worth even talking about is that eventually this person wrote a letter that was so absurd that it got featured on the Tucker Carlson program. <laughs> oh, boy. So it was, it was highlighted in a Prudy column, which then... And this is, of course, a segment that I had actually seen because I watched enough Tucker Carlson to come across it, apparently. But the, the letter was titled, Help! My husband won't remove his mask, even for sex. And then uh, that gets answered by Prudy, and then it gets turned into a Chiron on the Tucker Carlson program, where at the bottom of the screen he's, he's interviewing Clay Travis about how crazy fucking liberals are. And at the bottom of the screen it says, Terrified liberals keep their masks on during sex. <laughs> so at, at some point the troll like takes on a life of its own entirely yeah. and it's allowed to be pointed at as the excesses of the other tribe. And the fact that none of it is true in the first place no longer matters at I'm all. I'm curious, right? wh what was the advice? It should nurture this uh, paranoia? Good question. Let's see if I can pull that up. Daniel Lavery suggests that he should speak to a physician about what the actual risks are here and that he should not be going around wearing a mask during sex because it's alienating you. Which, uh, if there's a consistency to his advice when he's not scolding the person for being terrible, it is in, in the way that most advice columns try to get the letter writer to see things from the perspective of the person who they're complaining about. Oftentimes, it seems like Daniel Lavery's advice was, well, you're perfect here. You're not doing anything wrong whatsoever. Here is the way in which this other person is fucking things up, and here's how you can confront them. Here, here, here's a, a dialogue uh, that you can use to better make them understand where you're coming from, which is the exact opposite of how you imagine letter writers being responded to in the in the Dear Abby days, in the in the Ann Landers days, right? right? Which is that, and and even with Dan Savage, Savage is constantly saying like, ah, you're sort of being the asshole here. Whereas the the new way of of doing these advice columns is to say, no, you're in the right. It's it's everyone else who's the asshole. If they were going to take that approach, should have accused the spouse of infidelity. You know, they're careless enough to cheat on them, but. They don't want to be responsible enough to, to bring the virus back, so he's wearing the mask on during sex to prevent right. infection. And I don't want to necessarily tie it into exactly the thing that I blogged about this week, but it is interesting to me that it ends up on the Tucker Carlson program as 
an exemplar of how fucking stupid the other side is being. And by the way, there was no, they didn't open with, uh, I'm a progressive Democrat. They're just going off just shorthand. You wearing masks, you're, you're on that team. Right. So the whole well, right. if you're writing into Slate, if you're writing, you so you're you're writing into Slate and you're talking, you're asking this person at this liberal publication for advice, then you assume right. that this person, yeah, he's not, he didn't start off by saying what a liberal he right. was in the letter, but it's assumed by Tucker Carlson, right? right. And that's sort of the point, which is that, and I, I highlighted a, a tweet that actually Clay Travis did that Ted Cruz responded to in this blog that I wrote over at the website at brainiron.com where Travis links to video of a white, he, he titles it white man kicks black family out of New York restaurant for not having vaccine papers. Patrons cheer. This is where we are. And then Ted Cruz retweets the video with the hashtag liberals are racists, right? So like, <laughs> that's a United States yeah, Senator doing that. A troll. Right? Like, and this is what, and I, I'll, I'll, I'm just rehashing what I said in the blog, but like we've taught the politicians that this is what we care about, yeah. right? All the positive reinforcement they get from the algorithm feeds into the actual things that they say and do in government. Right. And I know that Lori and and rightfully gives me shit for being like, well, but none of this shit that happens on Twitter actually matters, except that it does because like it's a. It is, yes, social media. It's a perfect polarization machine because it's easier to believe the things that you already believe than to believe that you might be wrong because nobody on there cares about anything besides demonstrating their rightness. And it's shitty and dehumanizing because of choices made by its users and encouraged by its engagement algorithms. But our use of it encourages our leaders, the Ted Cruz's of the world, the, uh, the media thought leaders, to be worse at everything in real life because every public utterance is just waiting to be turned into a tweet or a cable news soundbite that will then be turned into a tweet and weaponized against one side or another. And it does matter, not because it actually matters in real life, like living right. in the world, but it matters because these people are – those are the people who are online but also running the United States government, yeah. right? So if it matters to Ted Cruz, then it very much matters to us, right? Because the extent to which he's concerned with his public image, the way he's portraying himself on Twitter, it matters to him. So it has to matter to the rest of yeah. us. It doesn't matter how much we recognize that it doesn't fucking matter if it matters to the people in charge. And it absolutely matters to the Ben Shapiros and the Donald Trumps and the Ted Cruz's and the Josh Hawley's of the world. And, you know, there, there is no, like, negative cost to this. I mean, they, they, may, not, they may not be a benefit, but it, if there's anything, it is going to be a benefit. Basically, somebody's like, oh, this guy sees the world the way that I see the world. So it didn't even matter what the actual votes on actual bills is like i don't think people pay attention to that like back in the day it used to be like i'm fiscally this and socially that and taxes this but now it just seems like i'm on this team or that team and and they're kind of going for those yeah, voters but the bills still exist what's that the bills still exist they do but it seems like it's almost because i bet you a lot of the, the people that are watching carlson or whatever are not like i want my taxes no. low whatever they're like no they never were culture. it's just very like oh, they're wearing masks when they're having sex, or, like, you know, this kind of dumb, low-effort stuff. But that that's just as good for a politician who wants to vote, because it doesn't matter why you vote for them, so long as you do. So if I'm going to retweet you or say something stupid with a hashtag, 
you know, I'll do that. And that's what they're doing. Is there any way to make it better? Because what we talked about at the top of the show with we fully expect Trump to continue radicalizing the Republican Party to make it make them uh, functionally less representative of the whole, but certainly no less powerful. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, I mean, powerful in the ways that that matter. So does is is there any path to it getting better? Because like I said, even if the overwhelming majority of America is completely tuned out from what's happening on Twitter, right, as as is the case, it will continue to matter to the people who it matters to, which is the chattering classes, whether po- whether they're in po- politics or media. Right. And I don't know how you get around that fact. I don't but know. Because the, the Biden administration, you thought the Biden administration was on that path, right, to, to caring less about what was going on. But they're not getting anything done either, right? right? They're not, like, and, and not to rehash my old thing, but Manchin and Cinema have made it pretty clear that, that my prediction about what's going to get done for the rest of the year and through to 2020 is probably closer to being true than your prediction that they're actually going to get shit done well, just the one right? shit, at this yeah. point. The infrastructure. Thing. Right. The, the only thing that they're going to get done is the thing that they've already gotten done. And it seems unlikely that they're going to be able to do the three and a half trillion dollar thing. And who knows what they get through in the budget. But does that shit even really matter? Right. Like, <laughs> Because, I mean, uh, the, I mean, I guess it, there's a, you know, I don't know what the odds are, 50-50 maybe, but there's a chance that there's going to be a short-lived government shutdown, right? The end of the, the month, the new fiscal year starts, and I think the Republicans are not doing the, the the stupid, goofy game they always do whenever they need to raise the debt ceiling. Right. By the way, eight times, I think, was the number that they raised Trump's right. the, the debt ceiling during the Trump presidency it's, it's just, with, without even talking right. about it. It's a ridiculous thing. But I think if you see government shutdown stuff, even for like a couple of days, uh, if you – I don't see this happening, but if the $3.5 trillion idea undercuts – the what was it a trillion dollar infrastructure thing, then that would be disastrous for the midterms because that means that you can't get anything done either, right? And so what what good are you if you're not going to do anything? So I guess it's still not likely to happen, but that could happen. But I don't think it will. I think the infrastructure bill is going to happen no matter what. We will we will see as far as that goes. But is there any path to? So yeah, to, the the answer is no because basically, well, maybe we'll will be better at it, but like social media is not going anywhere, right? And so all of this is basically social media is giving the platform to where people engage in this shitty way, right? So there's no chance that social media is going anywhere in the near future, right? So all of the shittiness... So what is the most that you can hope for? Is that it becomes this performative thing for these assholes to do, sort of to motivate the base and to and to keep the money coming in as far as the fundraising stuff goes, but that they actually, on a separate track, are able to, like, secretly govern. They're, right. they're able to, like, get shit done without telling the cable news channels about it and without tweeting about it, and that secretly they're actually being competent behind the scenes, because I don't see that happening either. Right. I, I think m- maybe, you know, when they're... Because I didn't see all of this interaction, right? So basically there are so many different outlets that... Not that many people are engaged with these back and forth, right? So I think maybe just a limited number of people are actually seeing this stuff that's on online. So maybe 
it, it just doesn't become that big of a deal. That's the best. Guess, case. That's the it, best case scenario, is, right? It's just, it, but it but it obviously matters to the people to whom it matters, yeah. right? So like, no, that's well, true. Whatever. Yeah. You've been listening to Cast Iron Brains podcast with Bob Nave. You can find the show on Facebook or Twitter. Also, head over to brainiron.com. You can also send us an email, brainironpodcast at gmail.com. What could you em- email us about? Well, you could do what listener and friend of the show, John, did. He wrote in to uh, describe the show. We talked about how would you describe the show to friends in a couple of sentences if you were trying to talk about us. John says, well, the first time Jesse, which is his wife, heard you, she thought you were Joe Rogan. Which, uh, ouch. Ouch. <laughs> ouch. I'm imagining uh, a meathead Bob. Like, oh, that look. <laughs> yeah. John goes on to say, I've actually had to describe you to coworkers as I sometimes put you on in the lab. I think I had to apologize once because you said the N word with the hard R and I had to drop everything to explain it. Uh, <laughs> not a ringing endorsement this so is, far. This is appropriate. That sounds right. Yeah. He should have so went in I with usually the saying, John goes on to say, so I usually say this is my friend Bob's podcast with his buddy Abe and his wife Lori. They discuss political, cultural topics, and I usually say something along the lines that you aren't coming from a right or left Republican or Democrat perspective, more heterodox and can sometimes be a dick, and that your positions are impossible to label, but dick in a good way. What's a heterodox? Heterodox is like uh, not in the traditional way of thinking. It's not about doxing or about being heterosexual. No. <laughs> okay. Like the middle of the road way of thinking in yeah, a Yeah, yeah, pres- it's just the, the the normally prescribed way yeah, of thinking. Yeah, I get it is, now. Yeah, it's yeah. just the way that it sounds not looking at it. It sounds like it's about something entirely like outing you as heterosexual. Right. No, not that. <laughs> Uh, so thanks for that, John. Uh, the opening and closing themes of the show were composed by Mark Gillig. You find his band. They're currently they've played a couple shows recently up in Connecticut at uh, tetramermusic.com. That's T-E-T-R-A-M-E-R music.com. Abe, what have you been watching this week? I went to go see The Eyes of Tammy Faye uh, with... Oh, some... Which is weird because there's also a documentary called that. Oh, is it? Whatever. Yeah. It's, it wasn't a very good movie, but like it looks like that. Is it, I think it's Jessica Chastain, one of the, the yeah, one of those actresses. Uh, it looks like she's like going for like an award. Like she kind of leaned all the way into the Tammy Faye thing. She did an okay job. And also, I this is not a watch, but I, I uh, there was a music Midtown festival. Uh, I forgot to mention this at the top. First of all, music festivals tend to skew very young, and everybody looked very young. Uh, but they uh, were enforcing the you need to show proof of uh, COVID vaccination or a negative test for the last you know 72 hours. Uh-huh. And, and the first day when we went, we were like, let's just be safe and actually bring our card because the way that the rules are written in the, in the in, 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 on the website. It didn't give an out for like a copy, you know, a picture of. Yeah. It just said. Where were they? Where was Music Midtown this year? At Piedmont Park. So it's just like literally down the street. It's just walking distance. And so we're like, oh, we'll just bring it and, you know, whatever. So we get there and literally nothing. You just just show them a picture of your thing. They don't compare it to your ID. This could just be anybody's. Right. And they're like, yeah, that's good. 
the security, and then that's the first uh, thing. The second thing, when you're going in, they do a security check and they have metal detector thing set up. I am almost 100% sure that they were not turned on. Cause I, they weren't even on. Because <laughs> the first time I went through and I realized, oh, I forgot to take something off, but it didn't ring, right? And so the next right. day, I came deliberately with stuff. And I walked through. The next day, the next day, you packed your Glock and your nine millimeter, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> just in case. They're like, just come out through. So, it seems to me like it's just all just for a show. Just like, oh, we did a thing. Like there was like, there was no way to verify any of this. It was just like, yeah. I mean, with outside, it didn't really matter. But like, I was like, so far, I've been to two places where they are requesting that you provide stuff, but they don't look at anything. Did you see any uh, big name bands? See anybody? No, I mean. I, I, this was a very weak lineup. I think Maroon Five, uh, oh, Headline geez. One, uh, Miley Cyrus was like the other night. The only band that I saw that I kind of liked were the Black Pumas, but everybody else was kind of like like uh, the Jonas Brothers. It was that kind of festival. Very poppy. Yeah. Sounds like. So this, I just sit back and just listen. It's fun. We uh, let's see. Watched we watched the, football. Watched football. Watched the Georgia game. We watched. I watched. Uh, Doctor Sleep was going off of HBO Max this weekend, so I wanted to make sure I'd been meaning it to watch it. It was not good. It was not good. Was this uh, the first time you've watched this? Yeah, I'd never seen it. I didn't watch it okay. uh, when it first came out. And like The Shining, both the book and the movie are like one of my favorite books and one of my favorite movies. And you could just watch Hocus Pocus. The fact that the two of them are in Stephen King's mind anyway in like contradiction of one another is both interesting and fine for me. Dr. Sleep the book which is a sequel to The Shining the book and not notably a sequel to the film uh was very bad as a, as no a redeeming quality, King book. just bad. No, it's just bad. I mean when it, you like, write like 20 books a year you don't well, need them like all to a be good. book a year, but yeah, he's got like, and I've talked about this before. This is an old take of mine, but he's got a weird problem with Stanley Kubrick's The Shining that he can't get past. Like he just like it's one thing to to not like an adaptation of your work as the author of the original work, and I understand that, but like he was never able to let it go to the point where he wrote a whole terrible sequel to his book as a, basically as a response to the fact that people preferred uh, Stanley Kubrick's version of, of the story to his own. That's probably why he can't let it go, right? The reception the movie got, right? It's something that- Right. I'm sure that that is a, a large part of it. But the, the, mo- the, the story is just so stupid, and the, the book is bad, and the, the movie was bad, and I— it's just it's like diminishing of the original work almost. My, it's like you could just watch Hocus Pocus, or you could watch. It is better than Hocus Pocus because Hocus Pocus is a stupid and Hocus bad Pocus movie. Hocus Pocus is a as movie well. made for children very well. Yeah, this Hocus other Pocus movie was a movie made for adults not that well. Yeah. So like you choose, or you could watch What We Do in the Shadows with the Energy Vampire. It would all be. It's all that. There's just so much better stuff. You know what? Sure. What's interesting is that you said that the book wasn't good. So why did they make the movie? <clears throat> Usually, uh, for the um, money, Abe. HBO bought uh, the <laughs> movie but, so that they made money. What do you mean? Because you, I guess that's true. I just was thinking like sometimes you know 
the way it usually goes is that people will fumble the adaptation, but the book was good, and they fucked it up no. somehow in the translation. But it started off as shit. Like, right. there's no place to go. But so I will say. For what it's worth, it was probably as good an adaptation of the book as one can imagine taking place. Like it was perfectly the the guy who directed and wrote and edited it is obviously a fan of both the original book and the original movie and and all of the associated I mean it just it all felt like gross fan fiction ultimately. Uh which is too bad because it's actually the original writer doing it. A uh, uh, writer that I love, but it does. It was like weird fan fiction. But probably my least favorite Stephen King book that what do you have that I've ever read. Screen there. I'm going to ask Abe a question oh. and then make him read something for our amusement. Abe, you uh, got anything else for us tonight? Actually, I do, Bob. Did you know that blackface is back in the news? You know, blackface. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's favorite hobby. A source of great comedy for everybody from Virginia Governor Ralph Northam to late night star Jimmy Kimmel. But blackface isn't just for hilarious jokes and pranks anymore. Last Friday, a staff member at an elementary school in Newburgh, Oregon, showed up to school in blackface. Not for shits and giggles, but as a protest and deep social commentary. Yes. Lauren Pefferly, a special education assistant at the school, said she wanted to look like Rosa Parks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a look she achieved simply by smearing iodine all over her face and hoped her appearance would be viewed as a protest of the school district's vaccine mandate. <laughs> Perhaps unsurprisingly, given the aggrieved and victimized nature of our woke snowflake times, Pefferly has been placed on administrative leave. Another grave injustice inflicted upon this generation's freedom fighters. People in blackface protesting life-saving medicines. I think that's all we've got for tonight, and we will talk to you next time. Later. Is that story made up? Uh, no, that was not. That was What's not the connection to Rosa Parks and vaccine? Well, Rosa Parks, civil rights. <laughs> Vaccine civil rights. Oh, is that what? <laughs> it's the same thing. It's the same. They are the same. Wow. That was a poor choice by her. Imagine thinking in 2021. <laughs> you woke up that morning and you said, this would be a good These idea. vaccine mandates are out of control. And like my personal hero, Rosa Parks, <laughs> I will not sit on the back of this bus. <laughs> And so you smear your face <laughs> with black stuff so that anyone passing by who you happen to encounter that day will say, ah, there goes Rosa Parks. <laughs> First of all, Rosa Parks in the context of the book, like, I don't even understand. How did she, did she want people just to, I, to be able to, just to tell, oh, you're doing a thing? I mean, I don't know. I will post a link to the story in the show notes, but... Clearly, she did it for the Instagram that she, yeah. she thought that she had come up with some sort of really great and and cutting idea that was going to go over really well on social media. Uh, not a not a great. Anyway. He said, "I think I'm serving a youthful porpoise." Now, I believe that. Uh... <laughs>
going to happen. I knew that was You don't happen. encourage that. Oh. It's like That was a 40-minute story. It's like somebody Youthful purpose? Youthful purpose. Yes. Not purpose. I don't know. Good god. I know. That was that was way out of line. No, that was way out of Who are like you to criticize saying... Oscar Pistorius? It's like somebody saying, "I got to show you something." They take on a 4-mile hike to show you a dog turd. <laughs> There's your reel for CBS. <laughs> we're getting this, Les Moonves. We're getting this right to Les Moonves. Yeah. I gotta have him. You wanna see that every night, Les? <laughs> this guy's got the goods. More Quebecois humor. He sits around all day getting Mark Strassman clips together. I don't know if he's naked. Could it be pleased to hear this? Strassman doesn't have much of a social media presence, or I would be uh, <laughs> reaching out to her. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> 